we have this, uh, this series about being sent. What does it mean to be sent? What does it look like to be sent? What does it look like for us as a church to preach the gospel among those who are around us? And Paul is one who preaches the gospel with boldness. And as I was preparing, it reminded me of someone that I think we're all thinking a lot of this year, and that's Martin Luther. Uh, Martin Luther, 500 years ago, was the father of the Reformation. And in 1521, he stood before the king of the time, King Charles V, and he had a message uh, to preach. He had been called in before this, this gathering called the Diet of Worms, and they were asking him to recant of all of this uh, new Reformation theology that he was preaching. And this is what Paul, or I'm sorry, Martin Luther says before Charles V. He says, Since your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply, I will answer, without horns, without teeth, unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. He doesn't shy away. He doesn't back down. He knows he has a message to preach from God, and he faithfully delivers it before the king, before people who can ultimately put him to death. He doesn't back down. And I imagine that Martin Luther must have been inspired by Paul, because Paul was so similar in the way that he preached, so similar in the way that he shared the gospel with the people around him, to both small and great, as we heard about in the passage today. But before we dig into the passage, I think it might be helpful to just get a little bit of context, because Agrippa and Festus are not people that usually just jump to our minds when we start thinking about the Bible and, and famous characters from the Bible. So who were these guys? Why were they important? Why did they have power over Paul? Well, first of all, Paul had been arrested two years earlier. There was an uprising at the Temple Mount in Jerusalem because Paul just happened to be there. And he had been preaching as he did, um, but this day he wasn't preaching, he wasn't really doing anything except visiting the temple to worship. But this uprising happens just because he's there, and he's accused of bringing Gentiles with him into the temple, something that was completely forbidden. Now, he didn't actually do this. It was a false charge. But chaos ensued, and one of the, the things that the Romans hated the most was rioting. And so they tried to put a stop to rioting as quickly as possible. And so Paul is drawn up into the, into the, um, the barracks, and uh, he has a chance to, uh, to tell them what's going on, and uh, ultimately Paul ends up in prison. But he is such a notorious prisoner that people are trying to kill him. And so they have to escort him out of Jerusalem with a guard of 200 men on horseback to get him up to a northern city called Caesarea. And there he sits in trial with a, a guy named Phoenix, the previous governor. And then for two years, Felix leaves him in prison and Festus comes. And Festus takes over as the new governor. And so this is the situation that Paul's now in. The Jews are still mad at him. The Jews still want to kill him. And after two years of waiting, they say, oh, there's a new governor. 
finally, our chance is here. And so they petitioned Festus to hear Paul's case as soon as possible. And he does so uh, after just three days of being in office. But Festus knows nothing about the Jewish faith, knows nothing about Jesus, knows nothing about any of these things that have happened. He's just come from Rome. He's a foreigner. And he has no idea what to do with this Paul guy. And he hears his case, and he can't find anything wrong with him. And so he says, why don't I send you back to Jerusalem? We can hear your case in Jerusalem. Knowing that the Jews in Jerusalem would push even harder for Paul to be killed there. And Paul, in his wisdom, says, no. I'm a Roman citizen, and I deserve to be tried here at the tribunal in Caesarea. And if you won't hear my case, then I appeal to Caesar. And so before he sends him up to Caesar, this other guy, Agrippa, comes into town. Now, Agrippa was the great-grandson of Herod the Great, the one who killed all the babies, the male babies at the time of Jesus, because he was feeling threatened by this new king of the Jews that was rumored to be there. And he was not a much better guy than his great-grandfather, or his grandfather for that matter, or his father for that matter. The Herods were not really, you know, a friendly sort of a family. And so Agrippa comes, and he's curious about Paul, much like his grandfather was curious about Jesus. He wanted to know what this guy was talking about. He had heard about him. He wanted to see what all the commotion was about. And so while uh, Agrippa, the man to whom Paul is preaching today chiefly, uh, while he didn't have any direct authority over Paul, Festus brings him in sort of as a, as a judge of his character, a judge of these things that, that were rumored because Festus himself has no idea what to do with Paul. So this is the situation Paul finds himself in. And he's standing there before Agrippa, before Festus, before the whole court. A lot of important people. A lot of people who hold his life in the balance of their hands. People that could put him to death if he says the wrong thing. So the stakes are high as he opens his mouth. So what does he do? Well, he preaches. He doesn't shy away from it. He doesn't back down. He tells them exactly what happened, and he tells them exactly what Jesus did for them. Paul knows his audience. One of my favorite shows is West Wing. And I also like uh, another show called Madam Secretary. And the reason I like these shows is that they give us this insider view of what it's like to be in the White House, what it's like to see what's going on in these, these high levels of power. But one of the characters I find most fascinating as a former director of communications myself is the director of communications, the guy whose job it is to write the speeches for the president or for the secretary of state. And one of the things I find fascinating about their work is that to do their job well, they have to know the audience. And so they're very careful with every speech that they craft. Every word of the speech has been carefully thought through to know whether it's going to resonate with the group that they're speaking to and whether it's going to resonate with the wider public. They're experts at knowing their audience. And this is Paul. Paul is an expert in rhetoric and the art of public speaking. He was trained in it. His whole education was founded on it. And so he starts into this speech knowing very well the people that he's talking to and shaping his case to match the people that he's speaking to. Paul treats these authorities with respect, perhaps even with a little bit of flattery. 
He's bold in his proclamation. He doesn't back down. He doesn't shy away from them, but he doesn't go so far as to be disrespectful. And because he's speaking to a Jewish king, King Agrippa, he grounds his argument in the prophets. Now, he doesn't always do this. When he's speaking out among the Greeks, among the Gentiles, he usually grounds his argument somewhere else. He has a different starting place. But here, he's speaking to a Jewish audience chiefly. And so he makes his case grounded in the prophets. And he even concludes his appeal to Agrippa saying, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. This is the core of his argument because the prophets pointed to Jesus. And Jesus is the one who brings about the resurrection that he's talking about. The end that we hope for as we engage in evangelism is fully discipled Christians. Fully mature discipled Christians. But that doesn't happen overnight. Everybody starts their journey to faith somewhere. And for different people, the entrance, the, the opening to the gospel is going to be different for each one of them. Some of them will be attracted to the message of God's forgiveness. Some to the message of God's healing. Some to provision or acceptance or like Agrippa, perhaps prophetic fulfillment. For me, it had to do with relationship. I knew a lot about God. I knew a lot about the Bible, but I didn't have a relationship with Jesus. And that was the thing that drew me into a deeper faith. So think about that for you. What was it that drew you into deeper faith? And think about, as we talk through this speech, the people in your own life that God might be calling you to speak to. What would draw them into deeper relationship with Jesus? What would they be able to hang their faith on? So how does Paul shape his testimony? Pastor Mike, at the beginning of this series, talked about how this, this testimony of Paul's conversion is spoken three different times in the book of Acts. And this is the third of them. And each one is told in a slightly different way because Paul has a slightly different audience in mind. So as you think about how Paul crafts this version, again, think about the people that God has put on your own heart and how you can shape your testimony to meet their needs. First, in the other two versions of this testimony, Paul crafts uh, his, his uh, introduction talking about these letters that he has, bringing authority to capture Christians and to bring them before the authorities in Jerusalem. In this version, he doesn't do that. He instead talks about the authority that's been placed in him. He doesn't mention the letters. Now, if you think about the setting, he's talking to Festus and to Agrippa, two very powerful men with authority. And so he's trying to identify them as a man of authority himself. Not just a man that carries letters, but a man who bears authority to do these things to the Christians, to persecute the Christians. The second difference is that in all three versions, Jesus appears to Paul and says, Saul, Saul was Paul's old name before he became a Christian, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? But this is the only version in which he adds one more phrase. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. What's a goad? A goad is a long pole with a sharp point on the end of it. And it was used in farming, particularly when you were driving oxen, to goad the oxen on. Have you ever heard of, of goading someone on? This is where it comes from. And so this pole would be used to sort of poke the oxen in the rear and get them to keep moving forward when they were being stubborn. 
And this is something that we see in Jewish literature. In the book of Ecclesiastes, it talks about the words of the wise are like goads in that they goad us on to further wisdom. But this was also a concept that was uh, really more popular in Greek literature. And in Greek literature, there was this concept that the, uh, the gods, the pagan gods, goad us on towards our destiny and that you, you can't rebel against the destiny of the gods, that you will end up where you're going. And so when Jesus says to Paul, why, or it says it's hard for you to kick against the goads, what he's saying is, you can't resist the call that I've placed on your life. You can try, but it's not going to go well for you. And so this was a point of connection between uh, the pagan rulers like Festus, who were in the court, and all of the, the pagan uh, courtiers who would have been there. Uh, and it's also an appeal to Agrippa. And so he's using this extra detail that he doesn't share in the other two accounts because it's something that will relate to who they are. And then thirdly, Paul omits all of the details about his blindness and his meeting with Ananias and how Ananias disciples him and, um, and brings him into the faith. He leaves all of that out. And the purpose for leaving that out is not that he's lying about it, it's just that the point of this speech is to get very quickly to Jesus' call on his life. And this is what Jesus says. But rise up and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people, from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and place among those who are sanctified faith in me. Again, Paul is being sent as one with authority. And he's appealing to men with authority based on his authority that he receives from Jesus himself. And in fact, this was one of the marks of a true apostle. People who had seen the ministry of Jesus and had heard Jesus speak to them. And this is Paul. This is his grounding for being an apostle. It's this call that Jesus places on his life to preach both to Jew and to Gentile, to small and to great. And now he stands before the king making his case for the gospel. So Paul knows his audience, and he crafts his message to meet his audience. But even more important than that is that Paul knows who sent him. And Paul was sent by God himself. If it were me in Paul's shoes, I might clam up or be tempted to shy away from the things that I had been asked to speak. This was a pretty dangerous situation for him to be in. But Paul doesn't get caught up in the fame or the power of the situation. He doesn't get enamored with speaking to Festus or to Agrippa. He treats them with a proper respect, but other than that, he speaks to them as he would to anyone else. In verse 22, near the end of his, his speech, he says, Yet now I urge you to take heart, For there will be no loss of life among you. I'm sorry, that's the wrong chapter. There we go. To this day, I have the, had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and to great, saying nothing but what the prophets of Moses said would come to pass. Paul stands before him speaking to small and to great. 
His speech is tailored particularly to Agrippa, but he also has Festus and all of the others who are present in mind. And his desire, his desire, is that every one of them would come to faith in Jesus through his testimony that day. He has a vision much bigger than just this one man of power. He has a vision that all would come to know Jesus, that all would know the power of his resurrection, that all would know the power of his salvation. But he also recognizes in that same verse that his help comes from God. And God had helped him in so many ways. One commentator says, thanks to Roman intervention, Paul had been saved from the hands of the Jewish leaders. Behind the protection of the Romans lay the hand of God. Paul was saved on that day in Jerusalem from the riots. He could have been killed at the hands of the, the people who were there. But he was pulled out of the mob and he was brought into the Roman barracks and he was protected by hundreds of soldiers on the way up to Caesarea. And he was protected by his prison cell. We tend to think of a prison cell as a place you don't want to be. It was exactly where Paul wanted to be because it was a place where he was safe from the people who were trying to kill him. So he had this protection from the Romans, but it was the hand of God protecting him through their rulership in his life, through their authority in his life. But Paul's words come from God too. You might think of this situation as a fulfillment of Jesus' words in the end of the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus foretells the, the wars and the persecutions that will come. And he says, but before all of this, they will lay their hands upon you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it in your minds, therefore, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Jesus knew that his disciples would face this kind of persecution. He knew that they would stand before people both small and great, even kings and rulers, as Paul does on this day. And Jesus promises that his Holy Spirit will give the words that are necessary in that moment. So Paul has help from God in protection. Paul also has help from God in the message itself that he's delivering. And it's comforting to know that our help from, comes from God, too. When we are asked to stand before the people in our lives and tell them about Jesus, Jesus will give us the words to speak. We don't actually need to worry about it. It's not even our responsibility to argue so eloquently that we convert these people, because we can't convert anybody. Only God can do that. All we need to do is be obedient and bold in the message he gives us to proclaim. So don't be discouraged if the people you share with don't immediately decide to follow Jesus. If you look at the text from, from Paul's speech today, even Agrippa didn't turn. He didn't accept Jesus this day. But he did hear the gospel. And Paul did plant seeds in his life. Who knows where those seeds went? Some people accept it and some people reject it. But Paul did what he was asked to do. Only God can change hearts. We simply need to be obedient to the things that he calls us to say. As we turn to the, the very end of this section in Acts, there's a little bit of irony that's added. 
Festus and Agrippa leave the room after Paul's speech is done, and they have this little dialogue between the two of them. And it says, The king arose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So what they're saying is, Paul could have gone free. He could have had his freedom. He could have gone about preaching as he, as he had been doing. And so they see it as ironic that Paul has to still be in chains and be sent to Caesar and remain in prison. Paul sees it another way. Paul sees it as a fulfillment of his purpose, as an opportunity for the gospel. He's not worried about being in chains. And in fact, this is the fulfillment of what was said by Jesus at the very beginning of the book of Acts, before he ascends up into heaven. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Caesar is the ends of the earth. He was the most powerful ruler in that day. His empire stretched as far as anybody knew where the maps would go. And so to preach before Caesar, as Paul might have had the opportunity to do, was indeed to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. In the book of Philippians, Paul is reflecting on his ministry from prison, probably just a few years after this incident. And he says this, With full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. And he goes on to talk about how it's a good thing if he remains alive because he gets to keep preaching and sharing the gospel with the people around him. And it's a good thing if he dies because he gets to go and be with the Lord. And so whether he lives or he dies, he's happy either way, as long as he's in the will of God. And that's where we all find our deepest fulfillment, is when we're in the will of God, when we're boldly doing the things that he calls us to do, not backing down, not shying away, but being the people he's called us to be among the people he's called us to reach. Paul has a boldness in his preaching that comes from his eternal perspective. And we could all use a little bit more boldness in our witness to the world. I know I've missed plenty of opportunities in my own life when I could have shared this gospel with someone, but I didn't. And the truth is, most of us will not find ourselves standing before kings or rulers or presidents but we will all stand before employers and coworkers and shopkeepers and neighbors. Whoever it is, whether small or great, we have a message to proclaim. And God is faithful in giving us that message. He asks us to be obedient to his call. When the door opens to share the gospel, what will we do? But we don't need to be pushy. If God wants the door open, he'll open it for us. But we also need to not shy away from any opportunity that comes up to speak into people's lives. And so we can reflect on the words of another bold apostle, St. Peter, as we conclude today. St. Peter says, 
Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for St. Paul and the example that he gives us of boldness and proclamation of your gospel. We pray that you would help us to be bold in our witness as well. Please bring to our minds our neighbors, our friends, our family, our co-workers, all the people in our lives who don't know you. And we pray, Lord, that you would use us. We offer ourselves to you that we might be vessels of your gospel. And we ask that you would speak powerfully through us and that you would change hearts and bring people to their knees, repenting and returning to you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.